Welcome to your Rancher Radio. Jim Watkins here. You might want to share this with people. If you think you know people that are open to uh, a new understanding of cosmic relationships and creation and religion and faith and science and how things are supposed to be, uh, you, you can share this podcast with your friends, uh, people that you identify as, as having maybe a, a keen sense that there's more to meet the eye than what we see in just everyday living. And I want to talk about something that's important because it is relevant to what's happening in the world today about the, uh, the conflict that is, uh, ensuing, particularly in America, but certainly in other Western uh, parts of the world, Western democracies is race, the conflict between two races, or uh, more accurately defined as between Caucasians and uh, people of color. So that's really what it's, it's, it's uh, starting to look more like is a, a demarcation between uh, Caucasians, people of European descent, uh, or people who are of color, whether you're from the Caribbean, whether you're from your ancestors are from Africa, maybe the Middle East, Indonesia. Uh, definitely there's a, an, a schism that's going on. Uh, and how it's going to turn out, we don't know, because much of it is being driven by politics. None of it is being driven by a desire for progression or a desire to make man better or to achieve peace. Uh, it's not about that. It's uh, there's There's some other kind of sick, retribution-oriented, atonement-seeking uh, going on where uh, neither side, well, I don't want to say neither side, but I will say that those who are fanning the flames of racism in our country are manipulating those who do not have the facts before them, and they don't have context. You know, a lot of people that are upset about retribution and, and a lot of what's going on with Black Lives Matter is a direct result of the lack of context. Nobody knows history. They only know the last 40 years of living. Uh, they are judging the morality of 200 years ago or 100 years ago by today's moral yardstick. So it's always good to go back to the uh, parts of the book, of the Arantia book, and you learn some new stuff. So we're going to go full board here, and this is going to probably, uh, you, you know, prepare yourself. This is huge. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. So in paper 51, they're talking about how races evolve on worlds, uh, bearing in mind that we are a, a different world. We are one out of 10 worlds are experimental. Our world was experimental. So things in our world are a little different. They're a little more askew than on other worlds where they have evolutionary beings like ourselves, a spiritual potential. So they're describing that there are certain patterns of existence that occur on evolutionary worlds. And one of those patterns is the appearance of evolutionary races. So it is by design that we have different races on, on, on worlds of evolutionary life. When mammals reach a certain intelligence, uh, they produce intelligent beings over time of different shades of skin color, but also of attributes. It's not just related to skin color. It's also related to skeletal, uh, skeletal features, endowments, certain things that you may be gifted at that other races may not inherently be gifted at. 
I know that sounds in today's world that's that's a no no. That's a big, big no no to you know, I mean it's so politically incorrect to, to say, you know, that races have endowments. It's considered an insult. And yet here we are in the fifth epical revelation and they're telling us that it is by design. Uh, the sons of God who work in the spiritual laboratories to come up with the races of men and women do so with specific gains in mind. They want all races to evolve towards a spiritual and intellectual period of enlightenment. And it happens because things are made a certain way. And in the case of evolutionary races, they tend towards having different colors. And so let me read to you what the Arantia Revelators wanted us to know. The race, and this is paper 51, section 4, paragraph 1. So paper 51, section 4. The race of dominance during the early ages of the inhabited worlds is the red man, who ordinarily is the first to attain human levels of, of development. But while the red man is the senior race of the planets, the succeeding colored race the colored peoples begin to make their appearances very early in the age of mortal emergence. The earlier races are somewhat superior to the later. The red man stands far above the indigo, black race. The life carriers, these are the sons of God that are created as high beings who carry life from from the divine laboratories or from heaven down to the evolutionary worlds, and they impart the full bestowal of the living energies to the initial or red race and each succeeding evolutionary manifestation of a distinct group of mortals represents variation at the expense of the original endowment. So pause to consider for a moment that the spiritual forces of our universe, they through evolution develop spiritual beings. That's what this is all about. Now, you may not have heard this before if you're not familiar with the Arantia book teachings, because in the current world view, evolution is, is not, is causational, and there is no spiritual direction or control. The Arantia book says no, it's, it is under control. It is spiritually influenced because they want eventually to, there to be, uh, an appearance of a will creature in material form who can find God or, uh, grow spiritually. That's the whole point. So continuing on. So they say that the red race, the initial red race, uh, has all of the goodies in it. You know, like when Apple makes a new phone or a new device, they put all their best efforts into making sure that that is the best possible device that they can create. And in this case, the life carrier sons, uh, who are the uh, one of th- four orders of uh, um Paradise origin sons of God, creator sons, abonal sons, magisterial sons, and life carrier sons. That's four groups of sons that come from paradise. It is this groups of sons' jobs, the life carrier sons, to impart the full bestowal of the living energies to the initial or red race and each succeeding evolutionary manifestation of a distinct group of mortals represents a variation at the expense of the original endowment. So they, now remember, this is after, in our world, the colored races appeared after the endonic race, the first will creature who ended up, as we know, if you read the Arantia book, 
they, uh, their ancestors remain in the Eskimos. The Andonites were the first original, aboriginal, will creature, mammal, humans. Uh, we, I think we call them the Denisovans now. Our modern science has figured out that there was an early race of human beings around a million years ago that showed up. The Arantia book identifies them as the Andonites. They are non-colored. If I'm going too fast, you can always hit rewind. The Andonites were not of true color. That's what made our world different. That's what made our world experimental. They didn't anticipate that a will creature mammal would show up on the scene before the colored races, because the colored races are the next stage in evolutionary development. On most normal worlds, the red race shows up first. On our world, they were all born from the same family. The Sangik tribe in the Swahili Valley, somewhere in uh, Pakistan. And this family had the Sangik race, 19 children, red, blue, yellow, orange, green, and indigo, all from one family. I feel sorry for that woman. I don't know. She must not have known what the hell was going on. And what happened was these children, when they would... They were markedly more intelligent than the Andonites, uh, probably in ways that were more social. They could probably coordinate their efforts much more. Uh, there are areas of the Arantia book where it goes into that, about the differentiation between the Andonites and the Sangik tribes. But in our world, instead of red appearing for 100,000 years, and then here comes the yellow, and then here comes the blue, another 100,000 years goes by, or however the timeline works, it's different from each world, but the colors appear over time. And in our world, they all appeared at once. And that's what makes our world different in one way, but there are still other ways. And remember now, this is from the paper having to do with Adam and Eve. So this is describing... What happens and why the material suns and what their role is with these evolutionary races of color. So hopefully we can move on. And so it says that the red races normally have everything going for them. They have all of the, the, the you know, it's, it's the debut, um, device or race. Uh, even mortal stature tends to decrease from the red man down to the indigo race, although on Urantia, unexpected strains of giantism appeared among the green and orange peoples. So it's making a point that half a million years ago, when the orange and the green peoples started to spread out, and they moved over towards, they sort of took over northern Africa uh, and parts of Arabia and maybe even down into sub-Saharan Africa, they later mingled extensively. In fact, the indigo race pretty much took over. The They absorbed the, rem, the remnants of the green and orange peoples for 100,000 years. But the green and orange peoples themselves had strains of giantism, people that grew to be seven feet, seven and a half, almost eight feet. And that's not a trait that you would see in other races. See, you know how we're talking about how Different races have different endowments. One of them would be giantism. And so that survived mostly, mostly in the indigo race. So look around the world. Who tend to be, well, there are some strains, yes, 
There are some strains that have, have managed to make their way over into parts of northern Asians. You've seen, uh, think about some of the tall Asians that we've seen. Not many, not as many as you would see in some of the remnants of the indigo or the African peoples. So I'm going to continue on reading. 51, section 4, paragraph 3. On those worlds having all six evolutionary races, the superior peoples are the first, third, and fifth races, the red, the yellow, and the blue. Now remember, we're describing a normal evolutionary world, not ours. The evolutionary races thus alternate in capacity for intellectual growth and spiritual development, the second, fourth, and sixth being somewhat less endowed. Uh, these secondary races are the peoples that are missing on certain worlds. They are the ones that have been exterminated on many others. It is a misfortune on Urantia that you so largely lost your superior blue men, except as they persist in your amalgamated white race. The loss of your orange and giant stocks or green stocks is not such of serious concern. That's an interesting statement coming from these revelators who look down on, on humanity a little differently than we do ourselves, where they say, well, you know, we're really upset, and it's it's a darn shame that your Urantia lost so many of your blue men, except as they've survived in the later white race, which is really an amalgamation of the Nodites, the Adamites, and some of the surviving strains of blue, and maybe a little bit of Neanderthal, uh, Neanderthal thrown in for good measure. The loss of your orange and giant green, sto green stocks is not a serious concern. So they're saying, you know, on most worlds where they only have three races, they don't even have orange and green races of men. Uh, so the fact that they didn't survive on your planet, well, it's, it's more common. Now the evolution of six or of three colored races, whilst, and I'm reading from the book, while seeming to deteriorate the original endowment of the red man, provides certain very desirable variations in mortal types and affords an otherwise unattainable expression of diverse human potentials. These modifications are beneficial to the progress of mankind as a whole, provided they are subsequently upstepped by the imported Adamic or violet race. On Urantia, this usual plan of amalgamation was not extensively carried out, and this failure to execute the plan of race evolution makes it impossible for you to understand very much about the status of these peoples on an average inhabited world by observing the remnants of your early races uh, in our world. So they're saying that, you know, we can't even look back and learn anything from, uh, you know, these these races that once existed because they basically didn't go anywhere. You know, there were, whatever their variable human potentials were, they didn't, they didn't, they couldn't overcome their, their animal tendencies to kill each other. And so they, they were, they were self exterminated. And you know, you look at the violence that still continues in, in those regions, Africa and in Northern Africa particularly. Uh, there is still so much conflict that you just can't seem to get past that, that conflict that they have there that's so ingrained in their culture with one another. So now reading, it says in paper 51, section 4, paragraph 5, in the early days of racial development, there is a slight tendency for the red, the yellow, and the blue men to interbreed. There is a similar tendency for the orange, green, and indigo races to intermingle. So that's an interesting statement, isn't it? 
Uh, next chapter. The more backward humans are usually employed as laborers by the more progressive races. This accounts for the origin of slavery on the planets during the early ages. The orange men are usually subdued by the red and reduced to the status of servants, sometimes exterminated. Now remember, they're describing on an average inhabited world during the early days of humanity. When human beings first start to appear as evolved human spiritually potential ascenders, the human race, material man. So they're describing to you what is common on worlds in time and space under normal circumstances. And in this case, usually the red man appears, he exists, he leads, he's the lead race. And then orange men appear and they're usually subdued. So my guess is there's a period of time where there it might appear as a defect, you know, uh, slightly less red than mommy and daddy. So these children, as they're produced, become eventually their own race over time, tens, hundreds of thousands of years. But they're seen already in these in the in the social structure as being subservient to the more red of the race. You could see how that could happen. You can almost draw some comparisons, you know, even in our country. You know, you had the amalgamated European white race that came to America and they brought in as laborers by the more progressive races at that time, in that period of time. And, you know, it's an interesting topic of discussion because we're having all of these discussions about reparations, right? So it's not uncommon that you have one race that sort of takes advantage of the other. And we certainly, can, you know, that's what we're all talking about now, right? Goes on to say the yellow and the red men often fraternize, but not always. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's kind of interesting today because I don't know that many, I don't mean to say this in a bad way, but I don't know that many people that are uh, Chinese and, and Indian. Do you? The yellow race usually enslaves the green when the blue man subdues the indigo. So it's not uncommon for the blue man, and they say that has survived in the white race here, that we ended up subduing a continent, the Dutch, the you know, the early European uh, slave traders. These races of primitive men think no more of utilizing the services of their backward fellows and compulsory that labor than your ancients would be buying and selling horses and cattle. We know that to be true. Next chapter, on most normal worlds, evolutionary servitude, involuntary servitude, does not survive the, dispens the dispensation of the planetary prince. So in other words, the planetary prince going back on our world was half a million years ago. By then, the colored races had already started. In fact, that was the signal for the planetary prince to arrive and begin the civilization, the, uh, the attempt to civilize primitive man says most uh, world slavery is gone by the time the planetary prince shows up. Although you still have what they say mental defectives and social delinquents are still often compelled to perform involuntary labor. And by the way, that is somewhat reflective of our own current society where we have people who are put into labor camps because they're, quote, social delinquents. China has a lot of them. But on all normal spheres, it writes, this sort of primitive slavery is abolished soon after the arrival of the Adamic race, which we'll get to perhaps in another paper. But what it's saying here is that slavery ends. It comes, it exists, 
Then as man becomes more progressive, it ends. Next chapter. These six evolutionary races are destined to be blended and exalted by amalgamation with the progeny of the the Adamic uplifters. But before these peoples are blended, the inferior and unfit are largely eliminated. I don't think they mean eliminated like infanticide. I think what they mean is laws restricting large, you know, like certain people are not either allowed or or maybe culturally shamed into not having children because they, um, slaves, for example. Um, that didn't work out on our world. Uh, the planetary prince and the material son, while other suitable planetary authorities pass upon the fitness of the reproducing strains. It's an interesting uh, section right there, a little paragraph, right? So we're talking about how the whole point of the race is that eventually the best, the cream of the crop, will become a blended and exalted race. The progeny of the Adamic uplifters will then mate with the best of the cream of the crop of these races that now exist on the world. And the planetary prince and the material sun, with other suitable planetary authorities, which means others in authority above us, our spiritual most highs, people who are, or not people, personalities who are there uh, to supervise the direction of our world. And they're the ones that go out and they try to find these really good biological strains and get them together. Because remember here that the goal on a, on a physical level is to produce the best kind of animal, the best kind of of human being, one with great intellectual potential, one with great spiritual potential, and one with great physical potential. Because when you have a when you're when those those three things are well balanced and well boys poised, you have you know the ultimate mortal specimen. I mean if if the if the goal here is to be better and to get better, be you perfect even as I am perfect, then that plan resonates through the evolutionary process to be perfect, to be better, to be your best. And they're saying that in our world because of the fact that we didn't go through that filtering process in our early age, our early years of development going back to 300,000, 400,000 years ago, then we have a larger proportion of, of what they call markedly unfit, defective, degenerative, and antisocial stocks. So now before you get completely offended that, that people aren't as equal as you thought, let me read paper 51, uh, section 5. Now we're going to talk about the planetary Adam and Eve and their mission. And it's going to get real interesting, folks, and then we're going to conclude it. When a planetary Adam and Eve arrive on an inhabited world, now, before I read further, let me just say this. This is how it should have been for us. I'm going to read through this whole thing because it's going to describe what would have happened if our own Adam and Eve had survived and their plan had worked. Are you ready? It's a great story. Paper 51, section 5. When a planetary Adam and Eve arrive on an inhabited world, they have been fully instructed by their superiors as to the best way to affect the improvement of the existing races of intelligent beings. 
The plan of procedure is not uniform. Much is left to the judgment of the ministering pair, and mistakes are not infrequent, especially on disordered, insurrectionary worlds such as Urantia. Remember now, Urantia was part of the worlds that had rebelled when the Lucifer Rebellion had occurred some 250,000 years previous. Usually the violent peoples, those are the descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, begin to uh, do not begin to amalgamate with the planetary natives until their own group numbers over a million. So what they're saying is that Adam and Eve come here, they produce a, a, a race the number's about a million, and then those people start the process of finding the best of the human race, and they start creating, guess what, a truly progressive society. Continuing on, but in the meantime, the staff of the planetary prince proclaims that the children of the gods have come down, as it were, to be one with the races of men. And the people eagerly look forward to the day when announcement will be made that those who have qualified as belonging to the superior racial strains may proceed to the Garden of Eden and be there chosen by the sons and daughters of Adam and the evolutionary fathers and mothers of the new and blended order of mankind. On normal worlds, the planetary Adam and Eve never mate with the evolutionary races. This work of biologic betterment is a function of the Adamic progeny. But these Adamites do not go out among the races. The prince's staff, now the prince and the prince's staff were here at the appearance of the, they were the ones that showed up right at the appearance of human will. In our case, they showed up when the colored races appeared. Human will had already been in existence with the Andonites. So the prince's staff are the physical uh, teachers, the hundred, the 50 men and women who we now know as the Nodites. And they're telling all of the races, because there's a common language at this point, they can all communicate, that's one of the objectives of the prince's staff, is to create a common language among the peoples. Now, there's maybe only 10 million people on the world at this time, but they're all sort of gathered around uh, Asia and parts of North Africa, parts of Europe, and certainly in the Middle East, and um, the Caspian region, and the Turkish region and all of that area is filled with all these pockets of different colored races, right? And they're all being sort of uh, groomed to evolve into a more progressive society. They still haven't figured out how to build buildings and they don't know anything about, you know, they might have some basic idea of, of, of lamp fire or using uh, oils from animals, but they're not, they're, you know, they're cavemen, Okay. At this point of human development, these people are not, they're just barely between the, somewhere before the Bronze Age, long before the Bronze Age. So on normal worlds of the planetary Adam and Eve, they don't mate with the races, their offspring do. And at that time, after Adam and Eve had been around for a while, on most worlds it's common and it's considered an honor to be selected as a candidate for mating with sons and daughters of the garden. Continuing on. For the first time, the racial wars and other tribal struggles are diminished, while the world races increasingly strive to qualify for recognition and admission to the garden. You can at best have a, but very, but a very meager idea of how this competitive struggle comes to occupy the center of all activities on a normal planet. This whole scheme of race improvement was early wrecked on Urantia. 
The violet race is a monogamous people, and every evolutionary man or woman uniting with the Adamic sons and daughters pledge not to take any other mates and to instruct his or her children in single-matedness. The children of each of these unions are educated and trained in the schools of the planetary prince and then are permitted to go forth to the race of their evolutionary parent, there to marry among the selected groups of superior mortals. When this strain of the material sons is added to the evolving races of the world, a new and greater era of evolutionary progress is initiated. Following this procreative outpouring and imported ability and super-evolutionary traits, there ensues a succession of rapid strides in civilization and racial development. In 100,000 years, more progress is made than in a million years of former struggle. On your world, even in the face of the miscarriage of the ordained plans, the fall of the garden, great progress has, I threw that in, great progress has been made since the gift of, to your peoples of Adam's life plasm. So you want to know why Adam and Eve appear in the first book of the Bible? It's because that's an historic fact that a material son and daughter came to this world for the specific reason of uplifting the then existent six races, seven if you throw in the Nodites. While the pure line children of a planetary garden of Eden can bestow themselves upon the superior members of the evolutionary races and thereby upstep the biological level of mankind, it would not prove beneficial for the higher strains of Urantia mortals to mate with the lower races. Such an unwise procedure would jeopardize all civilization on your world. Having failed to achieve race harmonization of the Adamic technique, you must now work out your own planetary problems of race improvement by other and largely human methods of adaptation and control. <clears throat> so we're not likely going to get another Adam and Eve to come and infuse us with their super blood anytime soon, is what they're saying. Uh, I just want to read one more part of the next where it kind of continues on that thought on a normal world, what's supposed to happen. Paper 51, section 6. On most of the inhabited worlds, the garden, the gardens of Eden remain a superb cultural center and continue to function as the social pattern of planetary conduct and usage age after age. Even in early times when the violet peoples are relatively segregated, their schools receive suitable candidates from among the world's races. While the industrial developments of the garden open up new channels of commercial intercourse, I, I think I may have read that wrong, but you get the point. In other words, from this point where the Garden of Edens are established, there also emerges a cultural center. Thus do the Adams, Adams and Eves of their progeny contribute to the sudden expansion of culture and to the rapid improvement of the evolutionary races of their world. And all of these relationships are augmented and sealed by the amalgamation of the evolutionary races and the sons of Adam, resulting in the immediate upstepping of biological status, the quickening of intellectual potential, and the enhancement of spiritual receptivity. So, in essence, the Adam and Eve that we had, uh, they didn't, they fell. And they fell, and if you know the Arantia book story, is because 
they broached or they breached the divine plan and made it directly with one of the uh, evolutionary tribes of color. And that was a direct, uh, well, it's not something they're supposed to do. Divine beings are not supposed to mate with humans. Uh, they have to, you know, have offspring. And then after a million of their offspring have, have been born and now they have a society, then those people can, you know, have intercourse and begin to have a biological uplifting effect on society. And that's what this is all about. But can you imagine if they had survived what it would be like to, you know, nowadays we, we try to get our kids prepped for college and the best college, you know, and, but, in, but if it had worked out another way, we'd have this great cultural center somewhere in the middle of Iraq, or maybe it would have moved to Rome. Who knows? Uh, could have been in Belgium. We don't know. Could have been in somewhere in the Middle East. But we would have had today a cultural center and we would still have visible to us an Adam and Eve and their progeny. And we have all would have benefited uh, biologically from having more of their plasm in our blood, in our DNA. We would be smarter. We would be more benevolent. We'd be more spiritually progressive and intellectually progressive. We would be getting along. We wouldn't have so many diseases. We wouldn't be having BLM in the streets. We wouldn't be having these racial wars. We wouldn't still be trying to reconcile things that started a half a million years ago. And so it's an interesting read, isn't it? Because you think here you're getting a picture of what it could have been like, but it also says you still got to solve the problem. And the way to do that is by fostering the best. Continue to foster the best endowments. Uh, it is not racist to want to, and I'm not going all Hitler or anything. I'm just saying over the long period, it is, you know, it, our genetics and our genetic research may end up helping us because we know that as they attempt to eliminate certain diseases that can appear in, in, in your genes, that right there is going to improve the biological stock. Because if we can eradicate constantly reappearing uh, genetic defects, that improves our lot, does it not? Nothing wrong with that. And if we can improve our educational system and we can improve our nutrition and our nutritional intake and improve our physical well-beings, that will help develop our intellectual well-being. And the Arantia book adds to this because it gives us the context we need to move forward. And that's really why I think they presented this particular paper. They wanted to know, how are we going to get from point B to point C? The the infusion of the Adamic blood has run its course. The rest of it is up to us. They gave us a lot of potential. And there's a lot written about the potential they gave us. And I invite you to read more of this particular paper, 51, on the Adam and Eve's and their contribution to humanity. In closing, I want to reflect on the current racial strife that we see being played out in our media and in our news. Some of it obviously political, some of it necessary perhaps in the reconciliation process, because frankly, humanity has a right to ask, how come there were slaves? Well, the revelators explain why they have a universal plan of race creation. They explain to us why we have different evolving races of color and the attributes those races of color contribute to the overall growth and progress of humanity. 
And they tell us that diversity of races ultimately does lead toward a happier and healthier society. Certainly one that is more equitable because of its spiritual wisdom, which has emerged from the amalgamated race of the future. The Adamic contribution has given us an accelerated society. The revelators say much of the industrial age that we've been experiencing for the last few hundred years is a direct result of the intellectual contributions from the Adamic genetic race. A latent abilities, I think is how they explain it. But you know what? No one wants to be on the receiving end of slavery, even if it is what they say a necessary process in early evolution. But it is also true that slavery has affected probably all the races in time, and especially in our world since all the races of color evolved at about the same time. So according to the revelators, it is a necessary part of the evolutionary process so that later societies are more advanced and thus less savage. And isn't that a good thing? Or were we all expecting God to just make us perfect? Until next time, on your Rancher Radio, I'm Jim Watkins.